Stay hungry, stay foolish. In a world of information overabundance, standing out becomes even more difficult, yet so many of us don't know how to make a basic point. We welcome public speaking trainer and author of Get to the Point, Sharpen Your Message and Make Your Words Matter, Joel Schwartzberg. Welcome to the show, Joel. Thank you so much, Hayden. I'm very pleased to be here. I was telling you off air before we came on, I'm always under a schedule to read a book in time for the show in order to interview the author. And when I picked up your book, I went, nice one. This is great. It's short. And then I realized that's actually the point here because you drink your own Kool-Aid. Right. Absolutely. In fact, when the publisher and I got together, they really wanted it to be short because if I can't tell people how to make a specific and concise point in under 15,000 words, then I'm really like a dentist with bad teeth. (laughs) So I have to be able to show and demonstrate what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And you, and you do it brilliantly. And before we explore it, it'd be great to hear a little bit about you because the embryo of your career started at the very early age of 11. Yeah, I, I got started in competitive public speech and debate when I was a sixth grader in Texas. And many people don't know there's actually a competitive network where you do things like persuasive speaking, informative speaking, a little bit of drama, a little bit of debate. <clears throat> and I kept up with that all the way through middle school, all the way through high school, and all the way through my senior year in college. And at that point, I had learned so much and experienced so much and practiced so much that I was able to become a national champion. So I was a national champion at an event called After Dinner Speaking in 1990, representing Emerson College in Boston. And then after that, I coached for a number of universities, including University of Pennsylvania, Seton Hall University, Queens College. And then it suddenly all came to an end. And for most people, they transition to something completely different. But I realized that as I interviewed for jobs and as I had a job and would give a presentation at a conference or make a pitch to my boss or give a directive to one of my staff, I was using all of those skills that I learned as a competitive public speaker. And so I sought to sort of crystallize that. And I really wanted to share it with other people. And that began this journey around 2006, where I began coaching private clients And as that workshop progressed, it really evolved because halfway through, I would have public speakers who were loud and gestured well and had good eye contact. But when I asked them what their point was, they wouldn't know. Or I'd recognize that what they were telling me, what they thought their point was, was actually a theme or an idea or a title, but it wasn't a true point. It wasn't an argument. And so I really steered everything to that direction because the truth is, Hayden, you can find a lot of public speaking advice all over the place. And some of it, frankly, is garbage. But what I don't see a lot about is how to make a point because people say, you know, that the title of the book is Get to the Point. We hear that all the time. Hey, man, get to the point. I'm tired of this. But we don't train people in what is a point. So we have a lot of people giving speeches and very few people actually making points. This is what I really got out of this. Every interaction is about making a point to your partner, your mother, yeah. and not just a keynote speaker or a TED speaker. And these are people who are leaders, designers, business leaders. No matter who you're speaking to, you need to make a point. And I, the big thing I really got out of this was that 
to identify what a point is. And you touched on it there. It'd be great to touch on that because we mix up often what a topic, a title or a theme is even. And we think that's the point. And it's not. And one thing I want to add, because I was inspired by something you just said, once I was challenged and someone said to me, well, my job is to introduce a speaker at this conference or to open up the conference. So I don't really have a point. I'm just welcoming people or I'm introducing the speaker. And that's not true. When you're introducing a speaker, your point is to make the audience aware of the value they're getting from that speaker. When you're opening a conference, you're reinforcing to everyone the value they're going to get from that conference, hopefully. So like you said, everyone truly uh, has a point, and whether it's your mother or your colleague or anything like that. Now, the, the key question is, what is a point, like you said? A point is an argument, and not like a Thanksgiving argument. <laughs> it's an argument that where in which you're making a proposition that you can provide reasoning for, evidence for, statistics for, but it's an argument that you're laying out and you need some time to explain and prove. So if you could go through your entire argument in about 30 seconds, it's not a true point. And even that's a little fuzzy. So what I did was I developed a test and I call it the I believe that test. And this is the start of making a point. Basically, if you pass this test, you're on your way to a good point. If you fail this test, you need to go back to zero and reimagine your idea. And the I believe that test is very simple. And it goes like this. Take what you think is your point, say podcasting. And put the words, I believe that, in front of it. And the test is, does that make a complete sentence that would impress your fourth grade English teacher? So, for example, you can't say, I believe that podcasting. You can't even say that, I believe that good, that good podcasting. Or I believe that the power of podcasting. See how none of those are actually complete sentences? So you keep working at it until you finally say, I believe that podcasting is an amazing way to have impact on millennials. Now, that's something you would need, or you can easily fill a, a good 10 minutes talking about proving and establishing the value of that particular tactic. Joe, let's, let's take that. You, you said there about podcasts, and people always ask me, why do you do it, Aiden? Why do you do this? It's not my, it's not my job. It's a passion of mine. And I say, I truly believe that, and I'm not using your the skills I, I got from the book. I do believe that. Wait, you have a good start. <laughs> but I believe that there is so many skills in the world that are lacking today, and it's not that it's nobody's fault. It's just that we have not been given them because the world has changed fundamentally. You say in the book you could point to the education system. I'm not that really worried about pointing at what's wrong, what's broken. What I want to do is point to, here's some skills, here's some tools, here's a different way of thinking that perhaps may widen your thinking, may break biases that we're born into, may break paradigms we're born into. And the point of the show is to give you those skills. How does that roll? That's good. Well, it's a complete sentence. So we could say right off the bat that it passes the first level of the I believe that test. But a couple of things I want to point out about it. You spent the first sort of half of that. And sometimes, you know, you know what an elevator speech is? Yes. That's when you have to make a pitch to someone between floors three and five in an elevator. You only have that much time. And we, really, we apply that to a lot of different communications, and this is one of them. So, Aiden, what you did is in the first half of your point, you described something you didn't like, something that needs to change. So you established a problem but you weren't making your actual value proposition until the last half of it. 
Now, that doesn't mean establishing a problem isn't important. It is. And I would leave that to your speech. But I would actually cut that first part out. And where you really took off was at the end, where you were describing how this podcast can elevate people and empower them to make a difference in the world that matters. That, you could just tell by the sound of it, right? That sounds resonant. Yeah. That sounds valuable. Boom, man, I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. And, you know, you can be a, you can be a spoiler. <laughs> you can bring that all the way to the front because, really, that's your gift to your audience, not what's wrong. People can come away thinking, oh, well, we're in trouble. What am I going to do about that? Well, you're actually providing the solution. So bring that all up to the top. Now, the other thing you talked about in that second part was, I think, three different things you wanted to achieve. And that connects to something in the book I talk about that I call split ends, which is imagine a CEO. And the CEO said, this new approach is going to make us more successful, effective, powerful, and meaningful. Now, that CEO just threw out four things that he thought was important. But for the receiver, the audience, they've now received four different things that they now have the burden of deciding which is the most important. And not only that, each of those four words is competing with the other three, and in effect, diluting the impact of the other three. So when you or anyone is adding thoughts to this, we want to be this and do that and do that and do that. I mean, imagine that times 20. You know the audience won't be able to process all that, and they'll come away with none of it. So if you really want to have impact behind a point, you want to stick to one big idea. That doesn't mean in your speech you can't move to other ideas, but keep in mind to put out or convey one idea at a time. So the innovation show is designed to elevate executives and others' ability to be champions of their ideas and to make an impact on the world. Beautiful. That's nice, man. You're showing your true value here. And this is this is on the spot here. This is on the spot and you nailed it. I, you'll, see, you'll see my uh, byline changing across every one of the touch points. <laughs> but what's important is you you had it all there. Like you didn't need to hire a speechwriter or a, a specialist to insert that. It's just about prioritizing it and, and this is key, understanding what the audience can process. A lot of public speakers don't understand that that audience is going to take away three, maybe four, and I'm lying, actually more like two, maybe three, ideas from your speech. So as a speaker and a communicator, you need to understand, well, if that's true, what are the two things I most want them to take away? And how can I apply as much mustard as possible to make sure that that is conveyed and they receive it? And one of the important things is knowing that it's not about the words. So I speak to a lot of speechwriters all the time. Frankly, I'm a speechwriter. And we focus on each and every word as if the audience will make a decision based on this word versus that word, or if the audience is a bunch of linguists and want to be impressed by the verbiage we use. And none of that's, just, none of that's true. I always counsel my clients, it's not about the words, it's about the points. You can use synonyms for any one of these words. The important thing is, am I making this point successfully so that my audience receives it? And at the end of the day, that's, that's, you know, win or lose. That's the point of failure or success. So it doesn't matter like how funny you are, how charismatic you are, how good you look, what color your tie is. At the end of the day, did they receive your point or did they not receive your point? Yeah. And you said it there because, you know, we're, we're taught that body language and nonverbal con content is so important and it is, 
But when I read the book, I went, you know what? You you can't afford, even if you're the best orator in the world, you look awesome, your delivery's brilliant, you're funny, all those things. If your content is weak and you lack a point, you're going to struggle. Yeah. You have a cake that's only icing and there's no value in there. And that's why people often ramble. Why do people ramble? Because they don't have that inner core point. So they're just throwing words around, words and words and words and words, and in a way, hoping magically the audience will put some of those words together and hopefully derive some value over it, remember it, and take it with them. And you know what's happening there, what the dynamic is, the speaker is putting the entire burden of the impact on the audience. The audience has to do the thinking, the processing, the synthesizing, the remembering, when really all of that burden should really be on the speaker, to tie it up in a nice package so that the audience can, can take it and understand it. Brilliant. And we might give the example you gave in the book of Denzel Washington versus Taylor Swift. I hate to throw Denzel under the uh, under the bus because he has given, and I need to say two things about Denzel. He has given a number of good speeches and he's a fantastic, uh, brilliant, phenomenal actor. That said, <laughs> a few years ago, he was getting an award from the Golden Globes called the Cecil B. DeMille Award. And he had known about this months in advance. And you can Google this on YouTube. He stood up to give a speech, and the first part of his speech was how he didn't have his notes, he didn't have his glasses, he wasn't sure what to say. That kind of went on for about six or seven or so minutes, and it never ended up. Like, you kept hoping at the end he would say, all right, well, here's the big thing I want you to know. You may remember a speech Matthew McConaughey gave an acceptance speech where he talked about the three things he believed in and how it led him to success, and it was brilliant. He sort of laid it out for us, and then he said it. Denzel was... It was sort of an, an impromptu mode, even though he had known about this for some months. So I was, I used it as an example of what goes wrong when you don't have a point or know your point. Now, on the flip side of that, and this is the other uh, story in the book that comes right after Denzel, is Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift won a Grammy for, I believe, Album of the Year. It might have been Song of the Year. And her acceptance speech, she wanted to make a point to other people out there, particularly young women who were being bullied, either through media or otherwise, and she was being bullied at the time. And she wanted to leave a message for these young women to stick up for themselves, to recognize their voice, to use their voice, and to not let anyone sway them from their goal. And you could Google that also. Uh, it's also in the book I transcribed it. But she gave a very laser-like speech where her point was completely clear. And how do we know when a point is clear? Uh, some, sometimes people think, oh, you know, my, my conscience will tell me or I'll do it for my buddy. My buddy will tell me, you know, your buddy doesn't know. The only way to know if you were successful in your speech is to go to someone in the audience and say, what do you think was the point I was making? Or this is what I was trying to convey. Did you receive it? And I'll tell you something, everybody at that Grammys telecast knew exactly what Taylor Swift was talking about. And she spoke for about two minutes. It was very tight. It was very clear. And her point could not have been more precisely or efficiently made. And, uh, and I'll link to those as well. And I'm also going to link, link to your website, joelschwartzberg.net, where you can find a lot of these points. We might move to, you mentioned the I believe that test, but you also mentioned the why test. It'd be great to give our audience a little taste of that. Sure. So sometimes people say, I believe that Twitter is fantastic. Well, that passes the first part of the test, right? Because it's a complete sentence. But 
What does fantastic mean to the speaker, to the audience, to everyone in the audience? Fantastic is sometimes what I call a badjective. Badjectives like very good, excellent, neat, fantastic. We'll often see these in Twitter because you only have so many words and sure you just want to say, oh, I'll throw a bunch of adjectives in there. The way to get around that, because there are so many ideas on what is very good, what is fantastic, is to ask why. So if your point is, I believe that Twitter or social media is fantastic, why? Well, it's a very easy way to reach a lot of people with a particular idea. Oh, so let's take out the fantastic. I believe that Twitter is fantastic and cut right to the value proposition. I believe that Twitter is a very valuable way to impact many people at once. So now you've taken out that really useless middle part, fantastic, good, and you really get to, and this is a point in the book, the highest value conveyance you could make. Now, I work for the ASPCA, which is in the business of saving animal lives. So I often want every speech I hear there to say, to end with, if we do this right, we will save more lives. Not so much if we do this right, there'll be more traffic to our website. If we do this right, we'll be in more states in the union. If we do this right, we will reach more congresspeople. No, at the end of the day, if we do this right, we're going to save more lives. So what I say to my clients is, what is your saving lives? Decide what that is. Maybe it's changing the world. Maybe it's making more money. Maybe it's putting out more product. Maybe it's having a bigger audience to listen to your podcast. Whatever it is, identify that. And in your point, get to that as soon as possible. Coming back to your question, the why test will help you get there. So if you have your point and then you ask why, and then you come up with something of higher value because you asked why, it's like you mined even deeper into the earth and you found something even more valuable. Take that and make that the end of your point. Yeah, and I love that. And, and going back to the lesson you gave me, Bring that right to the start. That's your elevator pitch, your why. Right. Because, you know, people start making assessments about communicators within the first 20 seconds or so. And what they want to know is, is what you're going to say interesting and relevant to me? So if you start with something that's not, or if you start with problems and spend too much time there, the audience is not getting that sense of what can I do? What's the piece of value for me? Knowledge is not enough. I want to do something or I want you to elevate my thinking in a certain way. So you want to cut out as much of the stuff in the middle that you think is important to set that up. And instead, like I said, you can go right to the, uh, the end and be a spoiler and right to that piece of high value. Bring it as close to the beginning of your point as possible. So you can say to your audience, this is what you're going to be able to take away from this presentation. That's what you do in the book as well. You say this, you spell this out. You say, I'm not going to look at the reasons why we're not taught how to make a point or what even a point is. You're like, I'm going to get straight to it. And you do. Right. But uh, you mentioned adjectives, Joel. And you, really important one I thought to share is you also condemned the use of the word so. You know, like I said, the very beginning of a communication is where an audience decides, are you going to be relevant to me? But the word so, and I believe this, <laughs> I don't have statistics to prove it, but I do believe that the most popular first word of most communications to an audience is so. So why are we here today? So I'm glad you came here today. So I see lunch is over. Let's begin with our presentation. You know, you can just imagine. I'm it. holding my hand up here, man, because I think I yeah. welcome most guests, and I go, so now on the Innovation Show, I think I say that most weeks, by the way. So I read this and went, 
Am I going to go back over the 100 episodes and <laughs> <laughs> edit everyone? Yeah, when I go to conferences, the speaker after me sometimes has a little bit of a heart attack thinking, wait, <laughs> am I going to break all these rules the audience just uh, learned from and wrote down? A couple of the other flags are uh, the phrase, I want to talk about. So how often do we hear that, right? I want to talk about our IT department. I want to talk about how we're going to get from point A to point B. But what is that person really saying when they say, I want to talk about? They're saying, all right, well, listen, I'm going to throw out a bunch of words and some stuff, and maybe you can combine it with your thoughts and stuff, and maybe something good will come out of it. Hey, we're just talking. We're just talking. (laughs) So it's fine to say that. I don't mean to say, like, never say these words. But think of what you're doing, especially as you open your speech. So instead of saying, let's talk a little bit about how about I'm going to show you how this approach is going to make us more successful. Or I believe that if we take this approach, that's going to really activate our audience. And those are the kind of things I really encourage people to do. The third thing I want to bring up, as long as we're talking about red flags, is the word and. So sometimes it's hard to know if we've used too many split ends, if we're having too many ideas at once. But the red flag, the key to knowing that is the word and. If you write a speech, look for that word and. And perhaps more often than not, you don't need that second thing. But the word and will help you understand where you're adding something that may in fact be subtracting. So this is all about selling your point, not only getting there, but then selling that point. And by getting to the point, you're you're enabling the selling of it. And you talk about this, and I thought this was really important. And again, I write a weekly blog called The Thursday Thought. When I read the book, I was like, damn it, I should have read this 100 weeks ago when I started all this. What I really felt was this piece was really important. Am I a sharer or am I a seller? Right, absolutely. And it, it comes from a story, really, that when I worked for a magazine, Uh, It was a kid's magazine, and the president of the magazine got us all into the room and had a a true sales expert, a sales consultant, come and give us the the big pitch on how to sell. And it was was a little reminiscent of Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glenn Ross, if you've ever seen that fantastic uh, moment from that movie where Alec Baldwin gives what's the quintessential sales speech, hard edge. But what happened in that room was those of us who were writers and editorial people, we thought, why are we here? We're not in marketing. We're not in ad sales. We're not selling things. We're the writers. And we thought that, and it was a few years later that I look back on that and I realized she was right to bring that guy in because if you have a good idea, it is not enough to share it. You want to sell it. Sharing it is sort of like describing it. And this is another big point of the book. You don't want to give a book report about something. You want to make a case for a proposition. And that's more about selling. A good metaphor I use is a book. The table of contents sort of describes the content of the book, but the blurb on the inside cover, that's doing the selling. And that's what you want to do. Too often I see people describing. So I had a client once who created um, brochures and hats and, and pins and all sorts of things. And I said, well, give me your best sales speech. What would you say to a potential client? And she goes, okay. And she lined up all of her stuff and she said, see this hat, this hat can have your logo on it and this hat can never be crushed. And see this brochure, this brochure will never get wet and your logo can go all over it, three colors, four colors, whatever you want. This pin, this pin is a special nanotechnology. It'll pierce your shirt, but it won't pierce your skin. And guess what? Your logo can go all over it. So she went on like that for a little while and then she just finished. And I said, was that your sales pitch? She said, yes, it was. I described 
everything I have. And I said, you know what I never heard from you? I never heard you say, I believe that if you buy my products, you will be more successful. And that's what it's all about, that line. Until she said that, and she didn't, but she was merely describing her inventory, but she was not selling it. And selling it requires those selling words. If you do X, this great thing will happen for you. You suggest some great phrases here. So I believe this as well, and you're, you, I'm using that word a lot more. We should be taught these skills. And that's why when I read your book, I was like, this is a way to share these great skills. And, you know, you, you give even three phrases, for example, of it's more selling language. And, and this is, you know, there's, there's negative connotations with selling. But what you're trying to do is get your point across. And I've had a few shows recently where I was I was talking to the person in a company, a big corporate who has a great idea and is trying to get that idea across and the language to use. But it was more non, it was language that wouldn't raise um, people's defensive part of their brain and they wouldn't start d denying the idea. But then when I read this, it was like that plus this gives you real armory. If you, if you both, both know what to avoid, what language to avoid. But then if you have the framework of language to use to get your point across, you can be really strong. And you give some great language for that. Right. You know, one of the things I wanted with this book was to be really nuts and bolts. I want people to leave, not just with theory and not just to think, oh, here are some people who gave great speeches. Maybe I'll learn something from that. But really arm them with words they could use, phrases they could use, tests they can use. And one of them are what I call these power phrases. I recommend, I propose, I suggest. Now, you may not have a true proposal, but often you will. Often you may not even realize that within this PowerPoint that you're giving, you're actually offering something of value, and that's a proposal. Now, those words, I recommend, I propose, I suggest, those are shortcuts to force you to make a point. You can't say, I recommend that, and then describe something. You're forcing yourself to make the sell. And one of the neat things about those words is I have a few direct reports in my job. And it helps me in their professional development because they'll often come to me with status reports or descriptions of projects. And I'll look at them and say, all right, that's interesting. What do you recommend we do next? And then they tell me. And I do this over and over until it gets to the point where my staff is then not giving me status reports, but then telling back to me, here's what's going on. And this is what I recommend. And those are leadership skills to be able to move from describing something and giving a book report to putting yourself on the line, right? Making a recommendation, a proposal or suggestion. They may be a winning proposal. It may be a failing proposal. It doesn't matter. That is what is expected of you if you're going to be a successful leader. I felt the strength of this. If you had a team of people who knew how to make points, imagine how more efficient you would be because people aren't going to come with just a load of rhetoric. They're going to come to make a point at a meeting. They're going to write their notes down in order to be successful and be impactful at the meeting. But also then we might build from the meeting time into email, for example. Right. And there are a lot of different platforms where these ideas about making a point are definitely reflected and important. Email is something I talk about in the book. For example, how do we first know about an email? We know from a subject line. So let's say you're proposing a new idea to reach a new audience, but it's part of a thread where people have been talking about it. 
So your big idea that's going to change the company and really turn it around and make yourself look great, it's under a subject line that's basically re, 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 Tuesday. <laughs> so one of the things I say when making a point, have it reflected in that subject line. Marketing idea that may make a difference or whatever that's going to be. Even if it's in the middle of a thread, I do encourage people to change the subject line if they need it to help them sell their point. And then within that email, you know, nobody likes to read a novel within an email. They'll just turn them off. So you want to use very, very short paragraphs. Uh, use bullets as much as possible. You basically want to give your point as much chance as possible to be received by the other party. And it's on you. The burden is on you. It's not on them to make sense from your email. The burden is always on you to place it and 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 put it out there in a way in which it will be most likely to be successfully received. So building on from email, we might look at PowerPoint because, again, this isn't about the 10th speaker. This is about every interaction in life. And it may be a PowerPoint that you have to give to your boss. It may be in a boardroom. It may be in, in a smaller setting. It doesn't have to be a big public speech. But you give some killer tips on PowerPoint. What's funny is this is where it gets a little... Um, confrontational sometimes or complicated. I have people push back on some of these ideas, but I'm really moving the idea of a point to these platforms. So we talked about email. Now let's talk a little bit about PowerPoint. Here's the first thing. I am a visual learner. I need visuals to help me or to help reinforce the ideas that are being presented to me. It just helps me to hear it and then to see it. And there are a lot of visual learners. So for me, frankly, that's one of the top reasons I, I'm a fan of PowerPoint to do that. But to do that, you can't show a pretty picture. A pretty picture is like, oh, gee, look at that funny chipmunk. But how is that selling your point? By the same token, say your PowerPoint has one word, and this is a big thing now. You'll see like the one word, proficiency or resilience. You'll just see that one word. And again, that doesn't help me as an audience person. I'm not pulling something of value from that one word. Yes, it may focus my attention, but on what? On a single word out of context. And so what I like to do and what I recommend is that people use their PowerPoint slides to reinforce the points they're making. And the usual stuff, there's a rule called six and six or five and five, which is six bullets and no more than six words per or five bullets and no more than five words per. I don't want to set a standard that you have to fit this template. But what I do want to say is use as few words as possible to make those points and do use bullets and don't overload it. So everything should be fairly concise. And then the key thing that people don't always do is with every PowerPoint page, ask yourself, what point is this particular page making? And if it's not 100% clear what the sum total of this page is, the burden is on me to say, what this all, this all adds up to is this. I believe that we have set up a good platform for us to be successful. On every PowerPoint page, ideally, you could actually say what this page adds up to is this, because that's what you're there for. You're there to make sense of it and to translate it for the audience. So keep it brief, keep it bulleted, and make sure to express the value of it, which connects to another thing which is important, and it's sort of a fad now. It's about storytelling. So every executive, wherever you go, you hear this thing, tell stories. Stories are great. Stories move your mission. They move your ideas. Everyone loves stories. And all that is true. There are entire conferences that are about storytelling. But here's the thing. The story does not sell your point. 
It only illustrates it. It is up to you as the communicator to make that story relevant. So the story is useless if you just end with a story and that animal was saved or that person lived to lead a much better life. It is not valuable until you say, here's what that story represents. Here's why that story is important. Or that story demonstrates that if we do this, this will happen. And at the end of the day, that's the key part of the story where you're establishing the, the relevance explicitly, not the story itself. That's a really interesting one. I use a lot of analogy and a lot of parables and, you know, fables to get a point across. Mm-hmm. But there's the fallacy. I think I'm getting the point across because I feel sometimes that I'd be insulting the audience mm-hmm. by going and explaining it. It's kind of like when you see a great Hollywood movie or a great movie and then they explain and and you feel kind of, you didn't need to do that. And then mm-hmm. you're kind of going to get a mass audience you do have to do it sometimes. Right. And a film, remember, the job of a film is like the job of someone who uses humor or a comedian. Their point is to entertain. So they may not need so much to have the idea of passing a point across. Although I will say that the best comedians uh, do have actual points built in and do go through great pains to make those points through the use of humor. But by and large, the speakers we're talking about, whether they're executives or whether they're interns, they do have points of value to make to their audiences. And they do need to explicitly make those clear. The stories and the proverbs and the parables, they do not sell themselves. Just like this beautiful hat will not sell itself. You need to say, if you wear this hat, people will think of you like this. If you use my product, you will be more successful, more effective for these reasons. Those words are so, so important, and yet I don't often hear them. And how would you do that, Joel? So how, what language would you use to go? So I've, I've told a little fable, for example, and, and it's, I feel it's quite self-explanatory to make the point, but how, what's the connector words that I would use then to make my point? You can use any number of words, but basically the point you want to make is, here's why this parable is valuable to us today. And maybe you can use a word like today or now, or in modern times, to bring attention to the fact you're moving, you're elevating from the story itself and making it more relevant. Like it's not, don't think of it so much as, I'm gonna explain this parable for people who are too dumb to recognize it. It's more like, I just told you this parable, now I'm gonna, we're gonna dig a little deeper and I'm gonna show you why the lessons from that parable can actually help us be more successful. Nice, okay, and then you say also, Sometimes we can wander. Sometimes we can lose where we are. And again, you give some great little tips of how we can bring ourselves back to our point. Right. So now we know how important a point is. And yet sometimes you start out talking about the importance of social media. And next thing you know, we're talking about American Idol. (laughs) How did I get from here to there? It'll happen. But once you recognize that, you need to get back quickly. And some of the shortcut phrases you're talking about are, here's the thing. Here's my point. Here's what I want you to leave with. So you could be talking about American Idol and say, you know, suddenly we're talking about American Idol, but I want to make sure you leave with the big idea. And that's this. My personal favorite is here's the thing, because it's often used in media training. Uh, If you know about media training, you know you're sending someone on a TV show. They're being asked questions. But the goal of that person is to make sure his or her points come across, whether or not that person gets asked questions related to that point. It's actually not their job to answer questions. Same is true for a conference. 
you want to answer the questions, but really you have this goal. You need to inform the audience about this, that, or the other. So that's the point at which you could say, you know, we're talking about this controversial issue, but here's the thing. I know there are, there are a lot of different opinions about this, but this is what I believe. Those words really draw attention to what you're going to say next, and they help you do your job, which is to get your point across in that setting. I'm really hearing that. And going back to your advice to me, where I would have teed up the problem always and then given the solution, this is a better way because it's, it's actually like setting the stage for the point to happen. Right. And the point, right, is the piece of value. Now, I don't want to confuse people to say like, oh, you should never set up the problem. That comes as part of your speech. I want to show you how this work will save lives. Now, first, we're going to look at why there are so many threats. Then we're going to look at the mechanisms we have to actually combat those threats. So I shared my point, and then I sort of previewed how I'm going to make the case for that. The other thing I want to make sure that I say is the I believe that test is a test. I'm not saying that you need to use the words I believe that necessarily. I don't think they will hurt. But if you take the I believe that away, what you should have is actually a very focused conveyance of a specific point. You mentioned, Joel, conferences, for example, or panelist or a forum, for example, and a lot of CEOs and senior executives listen to the show. And I think this would be really valuable for them to hear because oftentimes we wing it or we rely on our, our industry knowledge or the scar tissue we have from our mm -hmm. jobs to get us across the line. But you give some fantastic tips on how to A, be a, an MC at a forum or a, a, or a conference and B, how to be a panelist. You know, I always wince when I hear, hear those words, wing it, because wing it almost always equals disaster. Wing it says I'm not going to think of a point in advance, but somehow I'm so imbued with knowledge and so smart and so much of an expert, a subject matter expert in this area, everything out of my mouth will be golden. And not to, uh, not to disparage lawyers in any way, but some of my clients who are lawyers are the people most frequently who have that sort of ideas in their head. So when you go to a conference, pretty much your media team should set you up with ideas or your senior team set you up with ideas you want to get across. And when someone asks you a question, there are ways to deflect. And we're getting into a little bit of media training. But for example, if you get a question that's not related to the point you want to make, recognize that to a large degree, you're wasting your time in answering that question. Yes, the audience came to see dialogue. Maybe they came to see some, some fighting between the people on the panel, but that's not your goal. Your goal is to get across your point. So how do you do that if asked a question? One thing is you can answer the question. Yes, that's true, but here's the thing. So that's a transition to point. Or you could just acknowledge the question. Yeah, I know that's a popular question, and a lot of people are talking about that, but here's what I believe. So you're moving away from it. You're not, not answering the question, but you're recognizing your role. And if you're a panelist, sometimes there's a bit of a power play. Someone's hogging the, the, the panel. Someone's not talking enough. You need to make sure you get in there. So don't, if it's coming to the end of that panel and you haven't been asked that question or found an opportunity to say that, find a way to transition from what another panelist is saying and get that in there. Because remember, like any good communicator, you succeed when you convey your point. If you do not convey your point, no matter how interesting you are or how many people want to follow you on Twitter or Facebook, you have not succeeded because these are all point-making opportunities. 
And sometimes people will want to attack you or have an agenda that they want to get across. Maybe they want to undermine your company or you. And you, again, give some really valuable tips. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, don't go down that rabbit hole. You may be thinking in your head, oh, I'm going to show everyone. I'm going to win this debate. I know how to really make this person look foolish. But ask yourself those things, winning the debate, making someone seem foolish, having a good comeback, are those really helping you make your point? And so that's the thing that should be in your head when you're deciding how you're going to be successful or not be successful. In my job, I work in the media department, so we get a lot of questions from journalists who want to ask about this or that or the other. But we always need to recognize, even if we can answer a question, we need to recognize what's the point I need to make. If you get invited to a conference, remember this, you got invited because you're a subject matter expert in this area. If you get asked a question that's not related to that, it is as irrelevant to you and to the conference as it is to your purpose. You were invited to be there to espouse and give insight on a certain topic. Do that. But just recognize, again, that if you get pulled into a rabbit hole, you are no longer doing the job you came to do. Sometimes, for example, you're speaking and somebody will raise a question in the audience and they're bringing you off topic. How do you deal with something like that? So so oftentimes you might say, you know what, let's talk about that off air afterwards or something like that. What What's your advice in that instance? I would offer a quick answer if you can, and it doesn't send you somewhere you don't want to be like, Yes, that may be true. Uh, No, we don't believe that. And then quickly pivot, as we say, to the point you want to make. And remember, that's not you pivoting to something out of value. We often use that word pivot negatively, like we're going to just say something that has no value, that's a political statement or something that was pulled together by a committee. But in a conference setting, uh, whether you're a panelist or a speaker, remember you were there to provide insight on your point. So that's the first thing you can do. You can answer it quickly, yes, no, and move to your point. Or like I said before, you could acknowledge it. I know what you're asking is is a popular question and people are asking it all over the place. What I can tell you is this, and then you can end with, Aiden, what you said before. That's where we stand on this issue. I think that's the best way to do this, but I'm happy to talk to you after the session about some other ideas and see if there are there are ways to look at this that may actually help our cause. I was going to get into some of the mechanics because we've talked about some of the circumstances you may find yourself in, but there's a lot of mechanical tips that you give. For example, removing obstacles, vocal tone, vocal pitch, vocal fry, stuff like that. It'd be great to get into some of those, Joel. So the things I focus on, one of them is about pausing. Now, the beauty of pausing is because it allows us, for one thing, to create some it it gravitates everyone to a single point and it creates some drama. So if I pause and people wonder, what am I going to say? And they want me to get to the end of that. So a good pause before my point will draw attention to it. It'll create suspense. That's the word I'm looking for. So people will want to hear what I have to say. Uh, Pausing also slows things down. If you're a fast talker like me, pausing will help you maintain a good pace. You can't tell a fast talker to stop talking so quickly. They just won't. That's a hard thing to do. But if you tell them to incorporate pauses, it'll help. But you can forget all that stuff about pauses because there's one big reason that's more important than the others why you should pause. It's because pausing allows you to speak with 
precision. Often when we talk, our mouth is ahead of our mind. So we're talking, 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 and our mind is trying to catch up, make sense of it all, and process it and put it out in a way that makes sense. But it's hard to do if your mouth is ahead of your mind. We want to flip that so that your mind is ahead of your mouth, clearing the way as if with a machete through the jungle, so that your mouth can know exactly what to say. That can only happen through pausing. So if you have just a small moment and you want to be precise and make sure you're not using too many adjectives or having too many ideas at once, the best thing you can do is force yourself to pause, to embrace the pause. Some people think that if you're pausing, it means you don't know what to say next. That's not true. An audience doesn't process a pause because nothing is happening during a pause. No one ever really comes out of a conference or a speech and says, you know, that was a great speech, except that he or she paused too much. It doesn't really happen because we don't remember those pauses. Even for people who pause excessively, I'll ask the audience later or the other students in the class, how many times do you think Steve paused? And they'll say, I don't know, once or twice, when actually he may have done pregnant pauses eight times. So that's the first thing. Really embrace the pause, especially if you're a fast talker. It's easier to do when you have a live audience in front of you than it is if you're doing a podcast, because I'm just looking at a computer screen. But when I'm connecting with other people, then I can allow myself some time. And you'll notice that, you know, I do a test with some of my clients. I say, think about the most important part of your job. And now use pauses to tell me the most important part of your job with precision. So the people talk too quickly will ramble and they'll say a few ideas. And the people who are pausing say, I believe the best part of my job is the ability I'm allowed to use my creativity to make a difference. You know, pausing allows someone to construct that with precision. The only other big thing in terms of technique in the book is volume. And volume is, is one of the most important things. And often I say, if you take nothing else from my presentation or my, my classroom uh, or my workshop, then volume, that can make a difference. Because sometimes we want people to sound more like leaders, right? Well, what is that? How is that actionable? How do I sound more like a leader? But everyone knows how to be louder. And when you are louder, that's not just about audibility. People who are louder have more authority. They have more confidence. They have more strength. They have more credibility. All of those things simply by raising volume. And I do a test sometimes where I have 12 people in the room and I say, tell me your name, your title, and your point, but do it too loud, obnoxiously loud, inappropriately loud. And you know what? Nobody can do it because their insecurities inside just won't allow them to do it. And what they often have, men or women, is a volume that's just below. So I encourage everyone to be too loud in every setting, not just because more people will hear you, but because you come across with more credibility. I'm telling you, Aiden, people who are interns sound like uh, managers. People who are senior managers sound like vice presidents. It makes that big a difference in your credibility and in the impression you're making on people. You mentioned also then there's gender specific elements as well and that volume for women can be an issue sometimes. Right. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes there's a fear in some of my students' heads and, and typically they're women that if they increase their volume, they will be perceived as aggressive or sometimes shrill. Let's stick to aggressive. And aggressive is a negative 
value. Nobody really wants to be aggressive. Even if you're making a good point, audiences reject aggression and anger, even if they agree with you. So we don't want to go there. But largely, I say that's a fiction. When I polled the class and I said, all right, so Stacy was worried about her increase in volume, make her sound aggressive. How many people thought that was aggressive? And generally, they don't raise their hand. Now, they could be trying to support my point, but I really believe them. I said, well, what's the adjective you would uh, attach to that? And they say, assertive. Assertive is a very good word. So by and large, I encourage everyone to be loud and to not listen to the voice in their head and the insecurities that say, oh, people think you're going to be aggressive. Now, that said, there are people in the world who do bring their bias to uh, an audience setting, but these are mistaken thoughts that they have in their head. And you as a speaker don't need to customize them. What I always say is don't step down for the biases of your audience. Always step up even when your audience needs to grow up. I love that one, man. It kind of reminded me of that one. Don't raise the floor, raise the bar. You talk also about practicing. So one question that you often think is, I should use a camcorder now that you know cameras are so widely available, I should just record myself. Right. There are two mistakes I think people made. And this is another controversial area because we've heard a lot about practicing in front of a mirror or practicing in front of a camera. And here's the thing. As human beings, what do we do when we see a mirror or any representation of ourselves? What is our automatic reaction? We check our hair, we look at our teeth, we see if our skin is clean. You know, we do something that relates to our appearance. We've been trained to do this since we were children. Now, who looks in a mirror or at a videotape of themselves and asks, I wonder if I'm making my point effectively? Nobody. It's not natural. Nobody asks that question. Yet that is the key question, as we said, that makes a difference between success and failure. So what I worry about when people are videotaped or if they look in the mirror, they're not focusing on the right things. As an example, I had a friend who was a very strong public speaker. And he said, can you watch this video of me that someone took of my presentation? I said, absolutely. So he sat there and he gave a great presentation. But everything my friend said, and he was not, uh, he'd given a lot of speeches. He was not a novice. He said, yeah, but look at the way I'm slouching. And my tie, that could be a little tighter. And I look like I have big bags under my eyes. That's where this all came from, really, that discussion I had with him. when I realized he was not asking the right questions of that performance to decide if it was being effective or not. So the other mistake, also, when if you're looking at a mirror, that's a problem because you are trying to correct and evaluate at the same time, and that's almost impossible. So I really don't recommend looking at mirrors. The other thing I don't recommend is practicing in front of friends and colleagues who don't know what to look for. Because what are they thinking? They'll probably tell you, oh, that's great, or you look great, or I don't know, I guess it was okay. I can promise you they're not asking, is my friend or colleague making a point successfully to me? They're thinking of it generally. So you make it bad advice. Like I said, the only way to know if your presentation is successful is to have someone in the audience and go to them later. You could even do this as a practice, but what you're doing is you're teaching your audience. Go to that person and say, what do you think my big point was? What do you think the big takeaway was? Or here was the takeaway I was trying to get across or the value I was trying to convey. Did you get that? That's the ballgame right there. And we know it because we know that that's your number one job. Joel, you talk about how to end as well, because oftentimes we have these really awkward endings by people or rushed endings, and it ruins the point somebody was trying to make. 
Yeah, absolutely, Aiden. In fact, something that I like to say that I often forget to say is that the audience needs twice as long to receive and process your point as you need to make it. And I'm going to repeat that. The audience needs twice as long to receive your point as you need to make it. So when you say something, your audience is not processing that in real time. They need more time. This is especially critical at the end of your speech. You may end with a very good point. Doing this will help us make the world a better place. But then two mistakes are often made. Transitioning to another piece of business there, like this is how we're going to change the world. Now we'll take some Q&A. Or this is how we're going to change the world. Now we're going to move on to Sally, who's going to make a presentation. What you're doing is basically robbing yourself of the impact of that point you need to make. So when you are coming to the end of a speech, the best thing to do at the end of your speech is to reiterate your point. This is how we're going to change the world. One, two. That's giving your audience enough time to not just hear it, but to process it. But I'll tell you, my, the, the ways I've seen people end presentations that always make me laugh a little bit are things like this. Well, uh, I see that's the last slide. <laughs> <laughs> or they finish with the last piece of data on the last slide. So as you can see, 30% went up. <laughs> all right, well, that's what oh, I said. Yeah. Oh, they say, I almost said it just now. Oh, yeah, that's why I see that's all I got. Well, that's all I got. I mean, how many times have we heard that? We hear it a lot, right? Well, what is that saying? That's saying, like, I was just putting in time. <laughs> now I'm done, thankfully. And it's over. So what you want to leave with, remember your job. Your job is not to get to that last slide alive. <laughs> your job is to get to that last slide having made your point effectively. So the best way to ensure that or the double down on that is to say your point explicitly as the very last thing you say. Because audiences will often remember the very first thing you say and for sure they'll often remember the very last thing you say. So that is an opportunity to make your last sale and that's your point. Well, Joel, it's a great way to finish. And I'd love to ask you that. So from reading the book, I have a great feeling of what this book is about. We touched on many of many of the points today, but people can definitely read it and get so much more. It's a reference book as well. And I love the way it's written short. I take notes of every book I read. And it's funny, your book was shorter but I probably took more notes than I do regularly. That's great to hear. Sometimes for those who are writers, I like to think of this, the strunken white of making good points. What would be your parting piece to leave the audience with? What would you like them to go back to their work or their home with and something to stew on and something to change? I would like everyone to know that they can be a stronger champion of their points. And that is the word I, I like to use the most. You want to be a champion of your points, but it all starts with knowing your point and having a point. So begin your journey there. Aiden, you and I talked about a lot of stuff. Some of it was core. Some of it was peripheral to core. Here's the thing. Start with the most basic foundational element, point. Do you have one? I do now. Let's sharpen it. Let's say it a lot. Let's champion it. And everyone can do that, no matter what your experience is, where you are in the hierarchy. You know, sometimes people think some other people were born to be great public speakers. Not true. Public speakers are trained, not born. And you can train yourself. And that's why I wrote the book. Public speaking trainer and author of Get to the Point, Sharpen Your Message and Make Your Words Matter, Joel Schwartzberg. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aiden.